Good morning, church. Um, My name's Lizzie, and I have the great privilege of reading the word to you. Um, We're reading from Psalm chapter 8, and I'll give you a moment now to find that in your Bibles. Um, Before I read, I'm going to pray, and I am praying the lyrics of an emu music song um, called Ears to Hear. So let's pray together. We come, your gathered people, in humble reverence, Lord. We long to hear you speaking. We're hungry for your word. We come in expectation. We want to learn your ways. And you've not stayed silent. Please speak to us today. Give us ears to hear, minds to receive, eyes to see, hearts that believe, lives that obey your word today. Amen. All right, Psalm chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings, that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, So I'm Roy. I've been away for a few weeks, so if you're new, you might not recognize me, but I'm back. Um, So I want to open this morning by sharing a cartoon with you that I came across on the internet. So it's, It's pretty simple. I can just explain it. So it's a cartoon drawing of two snowmen. Uh, So, you know, like a a couple of big piles of snow with big round snowballs for their heads uh, and some sticks for their arms, carrots for their noses and rocks for eyes and their mouths. And above one of these snowmen is a speech bubble. And he's saying to his mate, don't be so stupid. Nobody made us. We evolved from snowflakes. I thought it was funny. Uh, But the point is pretty obvious. Common sense tells you that these two snowmen have obviously been made by someone, someone with enough strength to physically construct them, 
and enough imagination to conceive of them. You see, what is made reveals critical information about who made it. Psalm 8 recognises this kind of common sense notion. In fact, I would say that it establishes it, that by observing what is made, you can draw inferences about its origins. If you look at verses 1 and 9, you'll see that Psalm 8 is bookended, beginning and end, with God's glorious majesty, which is self-evident in what he's made. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But despite this kind of really clear emphasis on God's glory, throughout much of the psalm, the spotlight is actually on humanity. And it's not what you might expect, because this psalm is a hymn of praise to God. It's actually the first hymn of the book of the Psalms, and it leads us in praising God in verse 1 before outlining all the reasons to praise him through the rest of the psalm. In the bookends of Psalm 8, we see the glory of God from the vantage point of this fallen, sinful world. And then within Psalm 8, we see the glory of God, yes, but also the glory of mankind from the vantage point of the majestic God who made us. You see, God's glory and majesty are manifest to us even as we stand amidst the smoldering rubble of a fallen creation that we broke through our sin. And even in our corrupt fallen natures, we still reflect something of the honour and glory of our Creator. So today we're going to work through this psalm with just two points in mind. Firstly, God's glory, and secondly, mankind's glory. Okay, here we go. Part one, God's glory. Verse one. The psalmist proclaims that the Lord, our Lord, the majesty of his name is self-evident in all the earth and that he has set his glory in the heavens for all to see. Here we get a glimpse of God's awesome power. For millennia, humans have looked up at the night sky awestruck with the sheer size and grandeur of the cosmos. And, you know, in, in modern times, our awe has actually increased as images from the Hubble telescope and modern computer modelling reveal to us more and more of the unfathomable, untamable, vast and beautiful universe of which the Earth is a mere blip. We should surely tremble before the power of the one who set these things in place. But more surprising is verse 2, where it says, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. Here the psalmist says God has done another thing. Not content to reveal his power through the kind of obviously glorious power of the heavens and the earth, he has also revealed his power through the praise of those who are not powerful at all. It's really interesting to note how the Lord Jesus referenced this particular verse. 
So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. So just for context, this is the point in Jesus' ministry where he enters Jerusalem in what has come to be known as the triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem as a king, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. And how does he come? Check out verse 5. He comes humble and lowly, mounted on a donkey. The very next scene is where Jesus confronts the powerful money changers in the temple. He drives them out and he calls them robbers. Verse 14 onwards. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law, so that's the powerful religious people of the day, when they saw the wonderful things that he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, so that's a title which identified Jesus as the Davidic king, well, these powerful religious men were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read Psalm 8? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Like so many of the Psalms, this one is fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus. And by seeing how Jesus quotes Psalm 8 verse 2 here, we get an insight into an enduring principle. And that is God works powerfully through instruments which seem weak and fragile from our point of view, through children and through the childlike, faithful people of God. So back to Psalm 8 itself. Verse 1. That kind of makes sense to us, right? That God's infinite power is shown forth in the seemingly infinite cosmos. But verse 2 is not what we would expect. Why would the God of the universe choose to work through such lowly and unlikely means? And yet he does. The glory and majesty of the God whose wisdom is unsearchable is shown forth powerfully as the small and weak things of the world thank and praise their creator, even here in little old Vic Park Presbyterian Church, this and every other Sunday. Hear what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 1. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Paradoxically, it is those who acknowledge their frailty, their weakness, and their dependence on the Creator who God works most powerfully through. If we're not blinded by our pride, God's glory is manifest to us both in His awesome creation and also in His diminutive creatures. And ultimately, His glory is manifest in Jesus the king who comes riding on a donkey, humble and lowly in heart, as a babe in a manger, 
naked on the cross, conquering the world. Okay, moving on to part two, mankind's glory. So while this psalm is a hymn of praise, which is focused on God's majesty and glory, it actually has an awful lot to say about our glory as humans. In verse 1, God sets his glory in the heavens, but if you look at verse 5, you'll see that God has crowned humanity with glory. Verse 1 and 2 contrasted the powerful with the childlike, and then in verses 3 and 4, God's cosmic creational work is contrasted with his intimate, personal work. Listen. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. The psalmist is mind-blown at the vast, majestic work of God, which God has completed carefully and delicately by the work of his fingers, set against the truth that this God, the God whose majesty is evident in creation, the holy God of Isaiah 40, who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Well, he is mindful of us and cares for us. He knows us. He remembers us. He thinks about us and is interested in us. He's powerful and awesome, like the power of a billion suns awesome, but he is inclined to us intimately. We look up at the heavens and contemplate his glory while he looks down at us and cares for us. And this, this is crucial because if we only had the general revelation of the glory of the heavens and the majesty of the earth, as we look out over creation and up into the heavens, what would we discover about God? The author C.S. Lewis says that we would discover that God was a great artist, for the universe is a very beautiful place, but also that God was quite merciless and no friend to mankind, for the universe is also a very dangerous and terrifying place. So just a side point here, um, I've got an uncle who's yeah, pretty fiercely atheistic. I don't think he would, he would claim that title atheist, but his whole worldview is, is very much atheistic. Um, and at yeah, one time I was trying to talk to him about the implications of the greatness and power of a God who could create such a vast and wondrous universe as the one we inhabit. His response was that a God like that wouldn't care about us puny mortals. And a God like that certainly wouldn't care about who sleeps with who or how. He wouldn't be peering into our bedrooms. He would have better things to do. But this psalm teaches that the Lord does care about those kinds of things. He is a friend to us. God has the power to create and uphold almost endless galaxies of fiery suns, irresistible black holes, and breathtaking supernova. And yet verse 4 says his attention and care is firmly fixed on planet Earth where the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve live and play and work and love. 
In his steadfast love, God pursues the fallen race who rejected him and rebelled from him. You see, he's not an uncaring, merciless alien deity. He absolutely cares about our struggles and strife amidst a universe which can seem so dark and uncaring from our vantage point. Despite what my uncle says, God has the power to peer into every bedroom, every family, and into the mind and heart of each individual person. But why? Why would a God of such unprecedented power and might fixate himself on such seemingly mundane and petty human affairs? Well, because verses 5 to 6, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of you. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Because despite all appearances, the affairs of mankind are not mundane and petty to God. They're just the opposite. Unlike the common secular narrative might suggest, you are not just a little bit higher than an animal, but in fact, you are just a little lower than a heavenly being. The point is that you are of eternal and cosmic significance. God doesn't have better things to do than pay attention to you. Earth is the nursery of God's children. Earth is the place where his image bearers dwell. Earth is, so to speak, the center of God's household. With his fingers, God made the heavens and the earth, the moon and the stars. That's verse 3. And he made us rulers over all these works of his hands. That's verse 6. He goes on to say in verses 7 and 8 that he has put all things under our feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swims along the paths of the seas. That is to say, everything. We were made to be rulers over the entire world, the entire cosmos, and all that is in it. From the largest star down to the smallest microbe, we were created to take total dominion over all as vice-regents under God. That's our identity, our destiny. See, the Bible teaches us that we are not consigned to a life of merely subjective relevance, identified in relation to what we choose to value or aspire to but to a life of real, objective dignity and worth identified in relation to the awesome God who created this vast universe. We walk out of here today crowned by God with glory and honour and commission to reflect His majesty, His goodness, His justice, His love in all the earth. But it's not just you and I in church today crowned with glory and honour. It's not just you and I who God is mindful of and cares for. He is mindful of the Muslim, the atheist, the Hindu. He cares for the people of your workplace, your community, your household, the people of Vic Park, of Lathlane, of Carlisle, of Bentley, and all of Perth. His love overflows from the fullness of himself to all people everywhere on the earth. And he has given us the seemingly weak 
and powerless message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to take to them, to show forth his majestic name in all the earth. So, what's the picture of God, of mankind, and of reality itself that this psalm portrays? Well, firstly, it presents a view of God as glorious and majestic, yet tender and caring towards all people. Secondly, it presents mankind as dignified and honourable and a creation which is subject to our rule. And yet, when God looks down on the earth, on those he created in his image, those he crowned with glory and honour and made rulers over the works of his hands, what do you think he sees? Sadly, he does not see what is glorious and honourable. He does not see a race which acknowledges his sovereignty and love and seeks to live righteously under his loving rule, but a race which has turned against him and against each other, a race which has tainted and marred the image of God, sometimes almost beyond recognition a race which has fallen so far into rebellion and wickedness that we sometimes do look a little we sometimes do look more like a bunch of amoral animals than like those created a little lower than heavenly beings a race which has failed in its image bearing duties resulting in the smoldering rubble of a creation fallen into decay and chaos What a majestic and glorious God sees are rebellious people who have aroused his righteous anger and yet because of his steadfast love, people he tenderly cares for. This is the good news of the gospel, that despite our sin and rebellion, God is mindful of us and cares for us. He's acted in history to save us. He came to us as the Lord Jesus Christ, meek and childlike, made lower than an angel, sinless, humble and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He bore our sin, dying the death we deserve, then rising from the dead before being crowned with glory and honour as Lord and ruler over all creation so that we would be saved from the judgment of God and regained our unmarred, image-bearing potential and capacity. Now, you might say, where do you get all that Jesus stuff from Psalm 8? Well, as we close, please turn with me briefly to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. Hebrews 2, from verse 5. There we read, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. Sound familiar? In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, 
now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus died in our place to save us from the righteous judgment of a majestic and glorious God. He died to reverse the curse and undo the damage we did to ourselves and by extension to all of creation. Jesus died so that the works of his hands might be restored to human management and dominion. Hear these words from Romans 8, 19 to 21. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. When this liberation finally happens, when the children of God are revealed and the creation itself is liberated and brought under their rule, then the words of this psalm, which were true when they were written, are still true today, will be truest of all, totally fulfilled for all to see and say, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us eyes to see your glory. Thank you that you have chosen us, the weak and the powerless, to show forth your wisdom and might. Most of all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus' perfect life, death and resurrection imputed to us by faith. We ask for the strength and wisdom to share the news of his gospel with those we love, so that, we, so that they might be reconciled to you and your name might be glorified in all the earth. Amen.